Deborah Sue Lowe was a 13-year-old from Pompano Beach, Florida. Her family had just moved there from West Virginia, and she seemed to be adapting nicely. On the morning of February 29, 1972, she, her sister, and her brother began their walk to school. At an intersection, they turned left. She turned right. She was never seen again. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. This episode, you're going to hear about an innocent, kind family from Palestine, West Virginia. They moved to Florida to start a new life, the father of the family having been to the state before and immediately loving it. He thought it would be the perfect place his children could grow up and he and his wife could grow old. But that's not how things went. Little did the family know that a killer was in their midst, in fact hanging out with the Lowe family under their own roof a man who is likely responsible for Debbie's disappearance. And you are going to feel terrible for the Lowe's, as you should. I surely know because the interview for this episode was an especially emotional one for me. But before you dismiss what happened to the Lowe's as bad luck and that it could never happen to you and your family, remember, there are thousands of unsolved murders out there, thousands and thousands of unsolved disappearances, unsolved rapes, assaults, all sorts of violent crimes. The odds say that there are violent perpetrators in our midst as well. And like the Lowe's, we just don't realize it. And now a summary of the case. This is brought to you by my friend Megan Goodsight, charlieproject.org. Debbie was last seen walking to Rikerd Middle School in the vicinity of 8th Street and Dixie Highway in Pompano Beach, Florida, on the morning of Leap Day, February 29, 1972. The walk was about a mile from her house to the school, but she'd only been walking it for less than two months due to her family moving from West Virginia to Florida in December 1971. She never arrived at school and was never seen again. During a search the next day, her books were found in a trash can on the route to her school. The police initially believed Debbie had run away back to West Virginia once again because her family had only been in Florida for a couple months. However, Debbie's family never believed she ran away because she was doing well in Florida and had no such prior behavior. Debbie's family did not discover until many years later that a friend of their father's, Gerard Schaefer, was actually a serial killer in Florida who murdered young women and girls starting in the 1960s. Schaefer had, in fact, visited the Lowe home in those two months before Debbie went missing. Schaefer was convicted of various crimes and murders in 1973, the year after Debbie's disappearance. He is considered to be the main suspect in Debbie's case, although there is no physical evidence to support that theory. Debbie's case remains unsolved. The interview is with Debbie's sister. Unfound News. Volume 1 is out. Have you downloaded it yet? If you aren't a Kindle person, no worries. Print versions will be coming out in a couple weeks. Also, Volume 1 will be available as an ebook on Smashwords, in the Apple Store, and elsewhere eventually as well. If you bought it and like it, please give it a nice review on Amazon. You could expect Volume 2 to be out at the end of November. 
The cases for that book will be Joshua Guimond, Donnie Smatlack, Andrea Bowman, Robin Abrams, Regina Marie Boss, and Christopher Hyde. It will also include my interview with Charlie Project creator Megan Good. The Unfound website is working well. Have you checked it out yet? Specifically, The Secret Episode. I revealed a few days ago that The Secret Podcast concerns the disappearance of Stephen Kocher in Las Vegas in 2009. I was there when it happened and I experienced a lot, learning many facts that still aren't in the public domain. Well, you get to hear that information and my opinion on what happened to Stephen if you download the episode on the site, unfoundpodcast.com. It's free. I hope you find it informative. Finally, I need to give a shout out to listeners who in the past week contributed for the first time or actually stepped up their support on Patreon. They are Joel, Pam, Stephanie, Desra, Kimberly, Joyce, Elizabeth, and Jenny. You can expect that books signed by me and other products will shortly be a part of the Unfound Patreon experience. Please look for that. And oh, did you catch the Facebook Live show on October 25th? If you missed it, no problem. You can go to YouTube, go to the Unfound Podcast channel, and watch it there. Where you can find Unfound? Lots of places these days, so bear with me. The website unfoundpodcast.com on Facebook the unfound podcast discussion group which is private and the unfound page which is public please join both Twitter at unfound podcast Instagram at unfound podcast Patreon patreon.com forward slash unfound podcast the unfound email address unfoundpodcast at gmail.com but please don't hesitate to message me privately on Facebook Messenger as well. You can subscribe to Unfound at iTunes, Stitcher, Podomatic, Google Play, and a bunch of other places. My RSS feed seems to be very promiscuous. You can also listen without downloading at TuneIn Radio. On Amazon, Unfound, The Season 1 Cases, Volume 1, as a Kindle ebook. And finally, please mention Unfound at Reddit, WebSluice, True Crime Podcasts, Podcasts We Listen To, and all other true crime websites and forums. Due to both security and privacy concerns, I will not be using Debbie's sister's real name for our conversation. Also, for about the first 20 minutes, you're going to hear some very soft panting in the background. Annie and her dog are very close, and I believe her dog helped her through what you're going to hear is a very emotional interview. I'm very fortunate to have on this episode of Unfound the sister of Debbie Lowe, Annie. Annie, welcome to Unfound. Thank you. Tell the listeners uh, about your older sister, Debbie, about your family growing up in West Virginia. Well, we were... We all grew up in West Virginia, for the most part. Uh, Debbie was beautiful, friendly, long brown, brown hair, lovely smile. Very outgoing. She wasn't shy or backwards like some of us were. We grew up in the country where we always had plenty of room to run, hills to run on, 
we could go out and do pretty much anything and not get into trouble because we weren't close enough to town to get into trouble. So it, it was a really nice way to grow up. And there were enough of us that none of us were ever bored. I mean, you know, we always found something to get into together. And how many uh, brothers and sisters did you have total in the family? Okay, I have three brothers and two sisters. There were three and three. Like the like the Brady Bunch, I guess. Yeah. A big, a big, a big family, and I guess being early 70s, that would be appropriate, I guess. Well, yeah, it was. And especially with my parents. I think all of my mom's family had big families. My dad's family, not so much, but, I mean, to us, it just seemed natural. We're scattered several years apart, but you're close. Uh, there's 18 years difference between my oldest brother and my younger sister. Wow. So, yeah. So it's, you know, it's not like we're not stair steps. We're not just one after the other after the other. And how, how much older was Debbie than you? Debbie was three years older than me. Okay. Would you say that uh, those of the six kids that you and her were the closest or... I mean, did you say you and she? I mean, I know you were just maybe um, ten when she disappeared, but would you say that you and she had a lot in common? I was actually about a month shy of my tenth birthday when okay. she came up connecting. I can't say we were close. We were normal sisters. You know, she was a teenager. I was the bratty little sister that she never had time for. But yet. She did have time for her. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like she shut me out. She was just at a different age than I was. Sure. She was actually the third oldest, so there was a brother between her and I. And she just did things that teenage girls like to do, hair, makeup. I was just a bratty little sister. I wanted to do things outside and... I could have cared less about hair or makeup. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you bring up a good point that there, even though it's just three years in difference between 13 and 10, uh, there is a huge mat maybe maturity difference, you know, between there 13 was. and 10. Maybe when you got to be 23 and 20, you two probably would have been, had much more in common, been more similar. But at that age, it's a, it's an age where we all matured very quickly. I think her and I were a lot like my little sister and I. There are nine years difference, even though there are no children between us. There's nine years and one day difference between my younger sister and I. And even growing up, you know, we bickered and we fought, even though she was that much younger than me. But by the time she hit her teens, we were so totally close that she could start a sentence and I could finish it. Or I could start to say something, and she could finish the thought. Mm -hmm. it, it is something that just comes with maturity. Right. And do you remember, you know, the day, you know, back then when, when your, your parents said that, okay, we're picking up and we're moving to Florida. How did that strike you? How did, it, how did the other children react to all this? We didn't, I mean, it's, we didn't really think we would move. 
uh, my dad had went to Florida. He was a long-haul trucker, and he fell in love with Florida instantly. To us, that was just like a pipe dream of his. Oh, someday we're going to live in Florida. We're going to move to Florida. None of us saw it really happening right up to the day when we got in the car and started to Florida. My dad had went down there ahead of us. Naturally, he had a job waiting on him when he got there. And it was probably a month later when we went. But we, I mean, we just really never thought we would go. We were shocked. We were surprised. And I don't think any of us really wanted that lifestyle change. Mm-hmm. Probably as almost a 10-year-old, and maybe for the other children, especially since it's 1970. Uh, 172 in that in that time 72 that you never thought that you'd go down there because it seems so far away especially back then maybe these days with communication everything seems so close back then Florida had to seem like it was Europe or someplace it yeah it did and we ironically we arrived down there December 24th. 1971. Christmas we spent Christmas Day on the beach, which we all loved. We were just totally amazed by that. But it was just like one day we were going to school here, and the next day we were getting into the car with a friend of my dad's, a man who drove truck with him, and we were headed to Florida. And I'm sure my parents had made the decision a little slower. But back at that time, kids weren't really included in those types of decisions. No. The parents made the decision, and then the kids just found out about it and went. So you came down here to Florida, and listeners, most of them know that I live here in Florida. You come down here, and what happens? You get here Christmas Eve, you spend Christmas Day uh, in beautiful Florida, and how are, how do things get started? How How does everything go once you... Um, or here for a few weeks? Well, when we first got there, we lived in a small apartment that was on 8th Street. It's now gone. I'm, I'm told that there's actually a mall down in there now. Um, that was just unreal to us. It was almost cruel. Here we were in this beautiful state, and we did think it was beautiful. And it's always pretty outside. And there's no place to run and play. There's no place to do anything. And we weren't really satisfied with that. But a few weeks later, we moved into a house that was bigger. It made us feel a little less cramped in. It was also on 8th Street. We had a nice yard. And we started back to school. That helped us all get more into a routine than just having the to do. Mm-hmm. And that probably is a little bit of a culture shock coming from West Virginia. It's so hilly and mountainous and pine trees and things like that. Coming down here to Florida, it's so flat and you have palm trees and all the sand and everything. Had to be something it, for a 10 year old. It was an absolute culture shock. There were many things about Florida that we loved. My brothers and sister, especially Debbie, loved climbing up the palm trees, sort of standing up, you know, where you're on your feet, but you have your hand 
hands up there, mm-hmm. and you're just more or less walking up it. Yes. And we were fortunate that the ones in our yard had that slant to them so that you could do that. They loved going up the trees and picking coconuts. It just, to us, that was fascinating. There was a grapefruit tree in our neighbor's yard, and it hung over into our yard. And we we just about drove that poor man crazy with him telling mm. us to mm. leave his tree alone. <laughs> and how did Debbie adapt to her new her new school? You, of course, uh, you and she and at least one of your brothers had to walk to school, but you went to different schools. How was she adapting when she started back to school in January? Well, like you said, it was a culture shock to all of us. And I can't say any of us were really happy by that point to be in Florida. We all missed having the hills to run in. We missed having acres to run on, ponds to play in, the whole nine yards. But she did okay with going back to school. I mean, she she was kind of outgoing, so she made friends easily. And she wasn't, she loved walking to school because that was something we had never actually gotten to do. And she was old enough to walk by herself. So even though it was a mile to her school, she loved having the freedom of, well, you know, I don't have to have mom there to watch me, or I don't have to have any of the other kids there. I can just be a teenager and walk to school, like the other kids my age are doing. So, you know, she kind of had her... She was happy with some parts of it, and she was very unhappy with other parts of it. And so we come to the end of February, 1972, and what do you remember about that day? And and before that, because we'll get into this in, in, in a little bit, but did Debbie have any reservations of being there? Do you, do you, would you remember, once again, just being a little girl, did she ever talk about saying, you know what, I wish we could go back to West Virginia and I'm going to go back and I don't like that our parents took us down here. Did she ever express anything like that leading up to the day that she disappeared? No, actually quite the opposite is true. My grandmother had come to live with us and she had brought one of my cousins with her. My cousin was the sa- about the same age as Debbie. So Debbie was just happy as could be. I mean, she had another girl there about her same age to swap clothes with, do makeup with, whisper and talk and laugh. I mean, things like that are really important to a teenage girl. And she loved finally having that. And, you know, Florida was pretty enough that they could go lay out in the sun in the yard and just do things teenage girls loved. She uh, she did miss West Virginia. We all did. But not to the point that I ever heard her say, I'm going back home. You know, I hate it here. I'm miserable here. That that just didn't happen. Realistically, she was 13. She was okay in almost any environment. It just... Just not, not, just not that... Just does not even to this day, all these years later, just does not cross your mind even for one second that the day that she disappeared, that she ran off. No, mm. not at all. 
we weren't raised like that. And when I say that, I don't mean, I mean, all parents raise their kids not to run off. But we were close. Not the kind of close where even now, we don't talk to each other every day. We don't see each other every day. But if something goes wrong in my life, I'm going to pick up that phone and call my sister or my brothers. If I need something, I'm going to pick up that phone and I'm going to call my brothers or my sister. And even back then, if one of us needed something, if one of us were sad or anything, we were all in it together. So what happened that day? You uh, you and uh, Debbie and one of your brothers actually started your walk to school together, but you didn't go to the same school. Um, explain that day if you could. What I remember about that day is, of course, getting up and getting ready for school. And Debbie was sitting at the dining room table. And she had her books on her lap, and she had her poncho. And I remember Mom telling her, Debbie, you're not going to need that poncho today. Debbie said, well, I might. To me, that was more of a teenage girl fashion thing. If her friends were going to be wearing them, she was going to have hers. And we went out of the house. My mom always walked with us. And she had my little sister in her stroller. And we walked up to the corner of 8th Street and Dixie Highway. And Debbie turned to go right, whereas me and my brother had to go straight across the next two double lane highways to go to our school. Debbie had to go to the right and walk a mile to Rikert's Middle School. And she just started up the road and she turned around. She smiled that smile. She threw up her hand and she said, I'll see you later. And she was just gone. I mean, none of us knew it right at that moment. Yeah. We went on to school. Time to come home. My brother and I came home. My mom was starting to get nervous. and We had patio doors on the end of our house. And she was standing there looking at them, watching up at the road. She said, Debbie's late. And she just kind of kept prancing and looking, and there was no Debbie. And she called my brother, my oldest brother, who was at work, and he came home, and her and him started to walk up the road. They were going to walk to the school to see if they could see her anywhere. And at about that time, my dad came home from work. And they just took the car and drove to Rikers Middle School to see if maybe they could see her. Maybe, you know, maybe she got kept after school or... Maybe she'd had to go back to get books or whatever. They were hoping it was something like that. And they drove to the school and they drove home. And there was just no Debbie. Every She was just gone. So naturally they called the police. And the police officers came out to the house. And they couldn't take a report. 
because it was 1972. Yeah. And you had to wait 48 hours to report a missing child. Yeah. Did the when you when your um, mother and your older brother went to the school was it already closed? Did they have an opportunity to? Did anybody there tell them that you know what? No, Debbie never made it to school that day, or was it already closed by that time? Did they even think of doing that? You know, they did go to the school, mm-hmm. and um, but they did not find out till the next day that Debbie didn't make it to school that day. Okay. They went back when they went to the school. It was closed, and actually, they went back to the school the next morning to see if anything had happened to Debbie at school that day. That would have, you know, did she talk about going home with one of her friends? Teenage girls sometimes do stupid things. Yeah. And uh, that was when the school told him that she'd never made it to school that day. So naturally, they called the police department back and told him that. And the police department still couldn't take a report because it hadn't been long enough. So my mom just wasn't someone who could sit around and wait. She put the baby in the stroller and took me and my one brother in. I think we must have walked every street in Pompano. When it started getting late, we went home. And the next day, we started out walking again with Debbie's picture. And when we started walking up, we started walking towards Rikers Middle School. And just one block exactly from where we left Debbie that morning, there was a trash can. And Mom just walked over and picked up the lid, and there were Debbie's books, just like someone had walked up and just dropped them right down into the trash can. So naturally, Mom just ran to one of the people's houses there and asked them to call the police, because she didn't want to touch the books till they had seen them. Yeah. And the police come back out, and... They told her she, you know, she could take the books. There was nothing there they could use. Once again, we have to remember this was 1972, so it was a whole different era than what we deal with now. No, no, no Amber Alerts, nothing like that back then. Nothing. Nothing. Later that evening, they came back to the house and they did take a missing persons report on Debbie, but. Instantly, they went to, well, she's a runaway. She's left here to go back to West Virginia. You'll get a call from some of your family in a few days. She'll be back there. And my mom and dad tried to tell them that they didn't think so. But that just, she hadn't took even a change of clothes. She hadn't took anything. But the police were just sure. And, I mean, they kept telling my parents, oh, don't worry, don't worry. This is nothing to worry about. And my parents kept saying, yeah, this is something to worry about. She wouldn't have run off. She wouldn't be headed back to West Virginia. But nobody wanted to listen. 
So what you're saying is because of that, probably the, the police didn't do a lot because they already had something in their mind as to what already happened. They didn't, yeah. they didn't think that any crime had been committed. They just thought this was a young girl. She's only in Florida for a couple months. She misses her friend. She misses West Virginia. So I don't know, maybe 1972, hitchhike back or, I mean, something. I don't know. Yes, and once again, you know, the time didn't help because a lot of kids ran away and they hitchhiked to Florida or Texas or California, any place that was warm and had a beach, they would hitchhike to. So hitchhiking kids was not at all uncommon then. It was just so common that people didn't even think anything about picking up a kid along the highway. And so you search for, of course, your dad, of course, you know, your parents are losing your mind, losing their minds, you know, about, about Debbie. You're very concerned. Your rest of your siblings are very concerned. And I mean, how long did you as a family try to try to search for her? Um, of course, you're still looking to this day, but actually on foot going house to house, because obviously the police were not going to help you very much. I honestly don't remember. I'm going to say until we left Florida. Mm. We ended up leaving Florida that summer. Not all of us. My dad and my oldest brother stayed down there. But my mom just couldn't take it anymore. She was she was on the verge of a breakdown. And she still had little kids. I mean, my little sister was at that time. By the time we left Florida, my little sister was just over a year old. So, you know, it wasn't me and my brother that's next to me could have probably handled being home alone with no problem. But my little sister couldn't. So we needed to get my mom back here around her family. Plus, you know, there was the question, what if? Yeah, what if the Mm. police are right? What if she did? Sure. Sure. So my sure. mom, when she came back here, you know, it was like a hope to her, you know, well, maybe tomorrow she'll show up here at home. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, maybe with that phone ring, maybe that's her calling to tell us where she is. So it wasn't that she left Florida knowing that she was leaving Debbie there so much as we divided up to try to find if she was in either place, some of us would be there. Do you think at the time being that your parents and maybe in some of your, your siblings, the ones that were old enough to know, including yourself, being that you all rejected the idea that Debbie would have gone back to West Virginia, of course there was a slim possibility, but, Probably not. Did you have a suspicion at the time of who might have done something to her or who might have taken her at that time? And we're going to get into the the rest of this. But at that time, did do you remember your mother or your father saying, you know what, I'm thinking that person or anything like that? Any suspicions whatsoever? No, not a specific person. However, my mom did make a photo album 
of articles of other girls who came up missing, many of them similar in appearance to my sister, with the long brown hair. And my mom would say, you know, there's something wrong. There's too many girls coming up missing from this area. And she cut out the articles. My brother still has the album today filled with articles about girls going missing during the time that my sister had first went missing and within the next year afterwards. You found out that your mother was right. In fact, she was, I would say, a heck of a detective in doing that and being able to piece this all together that there was something going on in the area and it seems like the police was were totally ignoring all of it. I can't, I hate to give the devil his due, but I can't really say that the police ignored it. Mm-hmm. At that point, I don't think they even suspected what was actually going on right there, right in front of everybody. Right there in the in the Pompano Beach area, both north and south of it, all over that area. Yeah, in the Broward County area. Broward County, yes. Yeah. When did you first hear about the name? Of course, your, your parents knew him, but... Gerard Schaefer, what can you tell the listeners about him? Uh, how did your family know him back in 1972? Um, seemingly, he came into your family, got to know your father, seemingly right after you moved there. What do you remember about him? I don't remember a whole lot about him. I do remember one time he came to our house. I'm going to say I think it was probably the first time he was there my grandmother was a very outspoken person and he was in our living room and I was sitting there beside my grandmother and she said to him because he was making a big deal of being a cop and she said to him so you're a cop what kind and he made this motion like he was had a syringe in his hand and was shooting up in his arm. And I guess he was trying to indicate that he was a narcotics detective. And my grandmother just looked at him and kind of snorted. And she said, yeah, you look like the type. She had my little sister on her lap at the time. And I just kind of scooted in a little closer because when my grandmother didn't like someone, she was very noticeably vocal about it, and not too many people messed with her. But you never knew how someone was going to take her type of honesty. Mm. So, I mean, she didn't like him from the beginning, from the first moment she saw him. And this was, uh, Gerard Schaefer was a guy that I, I'm guessing your your father met first, but to this day, you really don't know how the two actually ran into each other. You don't know if your dad might have met him before all of you. You had said your, your father had gone down to Florida before, before, the, before the entire family moved there. Don't know if you met him like then or after the entire family got there, right? Uh, no, I honestly don't. And my dad was the kind of person that he never met a stranger. He knew everyone. And, you know, 
He'd stand there and talk to someone for a few minutes, and he'd say, hey, you want to come on over to the house? Or, hey, let's go over to my house. That's mm-hmm. just the way he was. Oh. So we weren't, it wasn't uncommon in my house for my dad to come in with someone or for someone we didn't know to stop by to see my dad. Just kind of hanging out, maybe having a couple beers. The kids are playing, you know, they're sitting on the porch, just talking about business or the sports or whatever. Yeah, more more often than not, they would be sitting in the living room. It would be us kids who were outside. Kids back then, and I say this a lot, they weren't like children today. Mm. We weren't in the house unless we just had to be. Most certainly we weren't in the house when our parents had deaths because that just, that was just a no-no. Parents were, children were taught differently. And we just knew when our parents had company, we went outside or we went in our rooms or we went somewhere. We didn't just sit right there and listen to what they were talking about and see what they were doing. And when did you first hear that Gerard Schaefer could be connected to Debbie's disappearance? It was in the early 2000s. And actually, it was my brother who made the connection. He was, we've all been obsessed with finding out what happened to Debbie. And as we get older, the need to know gets stronger. We want to find her so we can bring her home. But we're still alive to bring her home. But he was going through different things. And he happened upon a picture of Schaefer, and he was like, oh, wow, wait a minute, we know this guy. And then he started reading everything out there about him. And, of course, you know, he he told us, and we all started reading, and we were just like, oh, no. And who was Gerard Schaefer in general? Who was he? He was a serial killer. He was a monster. Yeah. Very much a monster. And and before the early 2000s, so like 30 years later, in those 30 years of you, your parents, your siblings, all those years trying to figure out what happened, it might be easier to investigate the average person these days with the internet, but those 30 years, Gerard Schaefer's name, to your knowledge, had never come up. Yes, no. So Gerard Schaefer, just to put this all in the timeline, he's a friend of your father's. He comes over to your house uh, a few times. You don't realize that he's a serial killer. Nobody at that point realizes he's a serial killer. Debbie disappears the end of February of 1972. Then you and your mother move back to West Virginia, but your father and one of your brothers stays there. But Gerard Schaefer... He gets in some trouble later in 1972 in, in something that he, that he did. What can you tell the, the listeners about that? He got fired from a job, got another job. What all happened with that? He was fired from Wilton's Manor Police Department, and he forged a recommendation and was hired by Martins County Sheriff's Department. Well, just 
I think it was like two or three weeks after he went to work for Martins County Sheriff's Department. He kidnapped two girls, Pamela Wells and Nancy Trotter, took them out to the woods, tied them up, left them, told them he would be back to butcher and kill them, or that he would sell them. And he got into his patrol car, and he left. While they were still tied there, luckily they did escape. They were running up the road and flagged down a police officer and ironically were taken back to Martin County's Sheriff's Office. And the girls started telling everyone there about this cop who had picked him up and what he had done. Well, even as they're sitting there telling this, he heard it on his police radio, and he called his boss at home. And he said, I've been bad. And his boss said, what are you talking about? What do you do? And he said, well, I picked up these two girls, and I was telling them about the dangers of hitchhiking, and they laughed at me. So I took them out into the woods, and I tied them up, and I was going to go back later and let them loose. But I did threaten to sell them or kill them, or, and they got loose, and his boss said, well, why don't you just meet me at the sheriff's office? And as soon as he got there, they cuffed him. They arrested him for false imprisonment. Mm -hmm. And how far would he have picked these two girls up? How far from where you lived in Pompano Beach? Your family lived in Pompano Beach at the time or earlier that year. Now, I honestly don't know how far from us, from us the Wells girl and the Trotter girl were. They were hitchhikers. He did, however, after he was arrested, he was released on bail. While he was on bail, he picked up Susan Place and Georgia Jessup. He picked, he knew Susan. He had actually been to her house also. And uh, he murdered them. He took them out in the woods and tied them up and murdered them. Their bodies were found in April of 1973. The next month, he picked up Mary Briscoloni and Elsie Farmer, they only lived about a block from us. All of these girls were from Broward County. And the Briscoloni and Farmer girl only lived about a block from us. Their bodies were later found at Plantation High School. But jewelry from one of the girls were found in things that were recovered from Schaefer's home. Do you remember, if you, once again, the generalities, how they eventually connected, besides the jewelry before that, how they connected Gerard Schaefer to these other girls? His method. The Susan Place and Georgia Jessup, when they were found, it was obvious they had been tied to a tree and butchered. And the roots and stuff were still there. And he had tied them the same way he had tied Pamela Wells and Nancy Trotter the two girls who escaped. So there was just no doubt at that point that it was the same person with at least all four of these girls. And that was when they made the request for a search warrant. And they actually went and searched his mother's house. And there they found jewelry 
teeth, bones, identification cards, purses, different things, tracing back to girls, back in back as far as the sixties. And they also found belongings of Susan Place and Georgia Jessa, the Bruce Galani girl and the farmer girl. Many other victims. So he, even though he eventually went to jail for crimes after Debbie disappeared, it's obvious that he had been at this for a while, going back, you know, at least three or four or five years before Debbie Efford disappeared. So when he was coming to your house in late 72, uh, late 71, early 72, he had already killed people. Yes, several people can be traced back to him through the 60s. Okay. He knew many of his victims, even though a lot of people think he was just someone who picked up hitchhikers. He liked hitchhikers best because nobody in Florida was going to be looking for them. But it was not uncommon for him to take a woman out on a date and her never be seen again. Um, that actually happened with two of his first victims. And even the Trotter girl and the Wells girl who got away, he had actually taken them to a boarding house to sleep the night before and picked them back up that next morning in his patrol car, saying he would show them some of the sights before he took them to the woods and tied him up and left him there. So he, he wasn't somebody that just grabbed someone and rushed. He would kind of bide his time so that the circumstances could be to his liking. And once again, stating that he knew some of these other girls as well and probably knew some of their parents, just like he knew your parents. Exactly. Okay. Is... Among those things that were eventually found at his mother's house, anything that could have been considered to be Debbie, anything of Debbie's, was there anything, I guess, amongst the stuff that could never be placed with any particular girl, to your knowledge, Ann, to your knowledge? Yes. There's several things that were never identified to any particular girl. And, yes, some of them could be Debbie's. Of course, it's been so many years ago that much of the things they found have been misplaced, and I'm not laying blame about that to anybody. Over time, these things just happen. But also, our memories tend to fade, and I, even if they had everything they found, I could probably look at it and not say for sure. Oh, yeah, this was Debbie's, or oh, no, this wasn't. Now, why do you think it was that it took 30 years, let's say, just to, to round it off, that you found out about him because he, he, people are going to find out he, be, he was, became to be known as a very prolific killer? And I'm wondering, probably listeners are wondering, why was it in 73 or even 74, 75 that the cops didn't say, you remember that Debbie Lowe girl that disappeared? Maybe we should check... Gerard Schaefer out for the possibility that he did something to Debbie. And also, how was it that 
maybe your parents you know, never heard about him as well. You think about that. When it comes to my parents, I don't, I just don't think they paid that much attention to serial killers that were arrested. Mm. And my parents had heard so many horror stories from the time Debbie went missing. They had learned about so many things that they had never heard about things they never even dreamed existed. Uh, girls being abducted and sold overseas. Girls being abducted and kept prisoners to work as sex slaves. Yeah. My parents didn't even know things like that existed. Being abducted, so, maybe taken into a cult, or which was a which was a popular belief back then. You know that the, you know that right. that was happening. Sure. So, I mean, they're already, I want to say mind-boggled, even though it probably isn't a good word. They don't know which way to turn. One of their children's missing. Um, my mom's concerned because so many girls that look like her are turning up dead. But they're looking because my parents, right up to the day they died, they never gave up hope of finding her alive. Mm -hmm. So they really weren't paying attention to people who were found murdered because that was not something they were looking for. They weren't looking for a murdered daughter. They were looking for a missing. Right, and that's why you said to start this part of the conversation that your mother was collecting news on young girls, young women who disappeared, not necessarily ones who were found dead. Right, because at that time, they had not yet been found dead. They were just missing. It was seeing a pattern of girls going missing. And that's what she was looking for. Missing girls, not... If we had been in Florida, actually, when they started finding the bodies, she may have tuned in more on him. If she had heard his name, seen his picture, but we weren't in Florida when that happened. And, and your father, he was still in Florida, but I guess he didn't put it all together or maybe didn't see the news. And once again, we have to remember this is 1972, not 2017, where you can access national news in seconds. You know, what's exactly. what's going on in Florida, unless it was a big hurricane or something, was probably not known to people in West Virginia. And even though my father was in Florida, we've got to remember when Schaefer was first arrested, it was for false imprisonment. It wasn't for murder. Right. So, yeah, I'm sure there was an article that a Martin County deputy had been arrested for false imprisonment, that he'd been kicked off the job. I'm, I'm sure that was in the paper down there somewhere. It wasn't something that would have went off on his radar because he also was looking for his daughter a lot. Any reason to your knowledge that, I mean, once again, you find this out 30 years later, it's hard to question any of the police who were on the, on the beat at the time being so much, so many years has passed. 
any reason you think that they didn't put it all together themselves. I mean, it's their job to do that, not necessarily your parents' job, that they didn't try to investigate that further. Did they, or maybe they didn't get anywhere with it, to do anything to your knowledge? The total horror of Schaefer. The things he had written, the stories he told. I mean, they're hearing horrible stories about an eight and nine-year-old girl who had been taken off of the beach and cannibalized. They're looking backwards for his victims, but mm -hmm. they just weren't looking backwards recent enough. Mm -hmm. Until the Jessup girl was found, I don't think they realized that he still actually had been murdering that recently. And so what you're saying is they just, when it came to Debbie, your sister, disappearing on, coincidentally, Leap Day, February 29th, 1972, she just kind of got caught up in the wash. You know, it's, they were looking for maybe, it seems like he killed, maybe seemed to kill in pairs, it seems, pairs of women together, you know, around that time, and she was just a single girl disappearing. Also... They thought she was a runaway. Right. They weren't looking for right. her in Florida. They thought she had headed to West Virginia. At that time, everything was done so differently. And that's how her paperwork was filed, was as a runaway, which is totally different than someone being filed as an endangered missing child. I don't even think they had endangered missing children back then. No. And in fact, today, just to show you how the country has changed, if a 13-year-old girl disappears in Florida, there's not one police department in the state that's going to say, oh, she probably went back to West Virginia where she's from or anything. No police department would ever even think that. Right. Would, that would not even be a consideration. It just shows you how uh, things have changed in the last 40-some years. Uh, yeah, I, th I think for the better. Obviously, you're, you're right. Uh, with technology, the police, uh, they just tend to look at uh, these things a little bit differently, although uh, they do have a ways to go when it comes to missing people in general. Um, Annie, in, in, like I said, the listeners, there's plenty of information on YouTube and elsewhere about Gerard Schaefer, but just one last thing about him. Uh, he was in jail, he was in jail to the day he died, but in any of the interviews that he ever did, and there's many of them that were recorded, did he ever, I mean, obviously he never mentioned Debbie's name, but did he ever say anything about other victims that the police don't know about, or ever said anything that could be construed to mean that he did something to your daughter, or your sister, I'm sorry, your sister? You're looking into the mind of a madman. To read his writings, there's, they say there's truth in every story he wrote, but it's hard to read his stories, and I have read many, 
everyone in my family has read many. It would be hard to read his stories and know a specific girl he's referring to because he changed the names and he prided himself on that. He bragged about that. So, yeah, there's many of his stories that could easily be about Debbie or any other unknown girl. There's more stories than there are victims, which is kind of scary. Mm -hmm. Meaning there could be other women who disappeared or who were murdered, and he did it, and just nobody knows. Exactly. And that's one of the things my family pushes really hard for is if you have a missing loved ones from the 70s or 80s, please take the time to check and make sure they are listed on the databases. Because until we know accurately how many missing children we really have from that time, nobody can even begin to guess how many hitchhikers he actually picked up and killed. Yeah, he was a monster. And anybody who, after listening to this episode, uh, looks into him, I think that, you know, uh, Florida serial killer Ted Bundy and maybe Eileen Warnos, who, of course, killed people in the state as well, are better known. George Schaefer doesn't seem to be as well known, but surely people will know more about him after this episode. And like I said, though, this is not all about him. Since 2002 to 2017, when we're doing this uh is it now considered to be the police here in Florida? Do they, to this day, consider Debbie to be a victim of Gerard Schaefer? Yes. They do. She is considered to be a victim of Gerard Schaefer, a possible victim. Of course, nobody can say whether she is or whether she isn't until she's found. Yeah. Okay. And uh, like Annie said, some of George Schaefer's victims were found. They were found, uh, a couple of them, on, a few of them on Hutchinson Island, where he had buried them. Um, but the, some of the girls were found at Plantation High School. Some of the other girls, a couple other girls were found in Port St. Lucie. But there are others like Debbie who have, have not been found. Actually, very few of his victims have been found. Most of them are still listed as missing. Okay. Annie, what did this do to your family? You said that you and some of your siblings and your mother moved back to West Virginia. Your father and one of your brothers stayed in Florida for a little while, but eventually, uh, I believe at least your father came back to West Virginia. And, and what happened after all this? Well, eventually we all went back to Florida. I mean, my dad came, got us, and we all went back down there because it, it was just horrible leaving her down there for all of us. And, of course, eventually we all did come back to West Virginia. It, it has changed the people we were. As parents, we didn't let our kids out of our sight.
even though we live in a very safe little community in West Virginia. We were very protective of them. We, it destroyed us in many ways, brought us closer in many ways. My father died of a heart attack after being out all day looking for Debbie in West Virginia. Just a, just a few years after she disappeared, in fact. Yes. He just could not, he couldn't take losing her. He couldn't take having one of his children out there and him not knowing where they were. My mother looked for her till the day she died. She would get phone calls from people she didn't know and instantly she was sure it had to be about Debbie. It had to be Debbie. Right up till the day she died, she did not look for a dead child, which I think is why after she died. Ironically, Gerard Schaefer was killed in prison on my mother's last birthday. My mother died 20 days later. So at least by the time she died, she knew he wasn't on this earth anymore. Even at the time, she didn't know who he was. She never, she, you know, she passed away, not, I mean, knowing him, but not ever suspecting that he had anything to do with Debbie's disappearance. Right. It was almost to us like an omen, like it was her final birthday present from heaven, was that he, he wasn't allowed to live any longer either. But yet it also, it put a finality on his cases that's hard to take because he took so many answers with him. Yes. I mean, who knows? Maybe if he hadn't been murdered that day, maybe if he had been allowed to die as he aged, guilt may have got to him. He may have told the families where their loved ones were. Then again, he was such a monster, he may not have. He enjoyed confessing and then recanting. So, we still look. I don't want anyone to think we've given up. We, We look for a deceased Debbie because we know in our hearts that there's no way she's been out there alive all this time and hasn't contacted us. That isn't even a possibility. No, it's not. Right. So we look in the Jane Doe's. We get very upset because there are so many kids buried in Florida in pauper's graves. That have no names. But these graves are so old. I mean, some of them go back to the 70s, the 80s. It's almost impossible to find the actual grave of someone who has been buried that long in a pauper's field. Have you or any of your siblings given your DNA? Is your DNA unfound? In case any bones are ever found some, one of these days. Yes, many times. We actually we actually have DNA in CODIS, 
but uh, most generally, if they find someone or if they find information even on someone who has been buried down there and they think it could be our sister, most usually the police department down there is wonderful about contacting us for fresh DNA samples. And we, like I said, we live in a very small town, so taking DNA is not common here. But the police department here has got very used to us coming in and them swabbing mm -hmm. our mouth mm -hmm. and sending the swabs back to Florida so they can run the necessary tests to see if it is my sister. Just to give the listeners an idea, how many times do you think you've had to do that? I I know of at least five hmm. different times that we have gave, given DNA since 2000. So maybe once every three years, something like that, they you end up doing that. Yeah, and I mean, it, it is in CODIS at all times. So you, you just never know when they're going to get a hit there. And they may never. Yeah. And we haven't used, of course, your last name during this. That's for both privacy and security reasons. You requested that, and I was more than happy to go along with that. But you, Annie, do a, not just involved with Debbie's case, but you know this has become something that you just do for a, a lot of people. You're very involved. You're very involved. I run a missing and unidentified person's page. I have a couple girls. Another woman owns it with me, and there are a couple very nice women who do a great deal of the work on it for us when we can't be there because no one can work mm -hmm. a page 24-7. I also mm -hmm. work with families. People don't realize that families with older missing persons cases, they don't always know where to turn or what to do next. And you get to feeling kind of helpless and hopeless. And that's kind of where I step in. I can't always tell them what they need to do next. But I can always listen and let them know that they're not out there alone. Sure. Why don't you give uh, this web page? You have a Facebook page. Why don't you give out all of that information so my listeners can check all that out, please? Uh, my page is called Never Forget Me, and the link is actually We Won't Forget Them. Um, we we do run current missing cases when requested. Our primary focus is the older cases, but we never turn any family down. If someone comes to us and they said, say, my daughter vanished yesterday, we're going to post that trial. That's just how it is. Yes. But we make actual albums of people who have been missing several years, many years, as well as albums of John and Jane Doe's with recreations. It's great work. Composites. We put them out there on social media, hoping that someone will know them. You know, it's, mm -hmm. in some ways it's terrible for someone to have to see their loved one that way. But it's a, it's a great tool. It's too great of a tool yeah. not to be used. 
my response is always this. I don't put anything out there that I wouldn't put out on my own sister. And I would love to be looking at a page and see my sister's photo going down it as someone who was found. Right. Because these people want answers. It's not about what the picture looks like or anything like that. It's all about getting the answers that they deserve. Right. And you can't get the answers if you don't ask the questions. Yes. That's true. That's true. Now, when you say older cases, do you you mean cases going back to your sister's time and even well before that? Um, yes, we actually have some cases on my page from the 60s. Okay. We have one case that I'm very excited about right now, also very saddened, a uh, 13-year-old girl who went missing in 1971. And oh. we were contacted by her children. She is now deceased. But her children have asked us to do DNA with between them and her siblings to bring their families together. And her family's all excited because they're set they're very sad. Her brother his exact words to me were it would be nice to know that these kids were his nieces and nephews. It'd be nice to know his sister was loved and had a life. But it's very sad because it would be a finality. There would be no more hope of finding her. No. And and this girl who disappeared in 1971, maybe, uh, why don't you give out where she disappeared from and what's her name? I cannot release her name because we're waiting on DNA. Okay. She did disappear from... Chicago, Illinois. Okay. Okay. And, uh, you know, we, her family's just really excited, and I feel really great about being able to help them because mm. they were one of the families that just really did not know where to turn. And it's, it's just been remarkable getting to know this woman's daughter and her siblings while they wait for answers. It's been a very good, feel-good part of my job. So she was 13 when she disappeared, and she already had a a child? No. Oh, I'm sorry. I must have misunderstood. I I apologize for that. I misunderstood something. She she disappeared from Chicago, Illinois at Mm -hmm. 13. Mm -hmm. Her children were born, I'm going to say, 10 years later. Yes, 10 years later, she had her first child. Her children are very close. She actually sadly died at age 30, but she had a life. Mm-hmm. And I know that may sound odd, but I can tell you, I would just be thrilled to know my sister had a life, that she got to grow up, know what it was like to be loved, have children. And that's a pretty remarkable accomplishment for a child to make it in the world out there on her own. I hope the listeners uh, will check out your work, Annie, or both your Facebook page uh, and the website. Um, Any last words before we conclude this interview? Once again, I would like to remind families, 
If you have a missing person, please make sure they have an active report and make sure they are in the databases. Annie, thank you for telling listeners about your sister, Debbie. And I hope uh, somebody out there knows something. We're going to put, once it goes on the Internet, as you know, these, these stories never die. This, this episode will be out there. Your interview will be out there forever. And I'm hoping very soon somebody comes forward. Somebody knew something about Gerard Schaefer, knew something about anything going on in Pompano Beach at the time. Maybe come across unidentified remains here in Florida at some time. It rings a bell. And I hope that you can get the answers that you've been looking for for 45 years. Thank you. And thank you for taking the time to care and to put these long-missing people out there to help us remind people that they are still missing. You're welcome, Annie, and thank you for being on this episode of Unfound. Thank you. You're welcome. And that was my interview with Annie, sister of Debbie Lowe. I thank her for being on the program, and I also thank her for what she's doing for other families who have lost loved ones like she has. One point that was missed, and that's my fault, not Annie's, it was a question I forgot to ask, although we did talk about it in our first conversation, is that to her knowledge, Gerard Schaefer never assisted in any searches for Debbie. In fact, I'm not sure Annie could remember Gerard ever coming over to the Low home after Debbie disappeared. And still, I don't think anyone in the Lowe family ever suspected Schaefer as a suspect. And you heard right. Both Mr. and Mrs. Lowe went to their graves without ever knowing that Gerard Schaefer could even be suspected in Debbie's disappearance. And Annie couldn't remember either of her parents ever uttering a word that they ever suspected him. Of course, not realizing he had been convicted in Florida for being a serial killer. As was also stated in the interview, if it were 2017, the Lowe's would have surely found out about Schaefer after moving back to West Virginia. 1972, news traveled a little slower back then, and sometimes not at all. But as the title for this episode states, we don't realize there could be killers, rapists, pedophiles in our midst. They know who they are, and they cover it up very well some never being caught. And in Gerard Schaefer's case, he was so good at being a wolf in sheep's clothing that the Lowe family never suspected him, despite their antennas surely being up. This is why it's best in any disappearance or murder to never rule out anybody, no matter how nice or kind or helpful we think the person is. So with that, I'm going to end the program a little differently than I usually do. I have a question for you. How do we go about trying to connect with 100% certainty in 2017 Gerard Schaefer to the disappearance of Debbie Lowe? Think about it. And that's the program. If you found it informative, please go to iTunes, Podomatic, and or Stitcher and give Unfound a five-star review. I thank you for listening. I'm Ed Denzel, and you've been listening to Unfound. Thank you.